0: In the Eucharist, the priest consecrates bread and wine, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, these elements become the body and blood of Christ. We know that Christ is present body, blood, soul, and divinity in both species, in the bread and in the wine. Yet at the Last Supper, Jesus identifies the bread he consecrates specifically with his flesh and the wine with his blood. Before Christ celebrates the Last Supper with the apostles, he performs several miracles, where he multiplies loaves and fish as a way of preparing people to later accept the Eucharist. In fact, in John chapter 6, it is right after one of these miracles that Jesus launches into the Bread of Life discourse, his most detailed explanation of the fact that he will truly give us his flesh and blood to eat. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And that our faith will rise or fall based upon our willingness to accept this reality. But why would Jesus multiply loaves and fish as a way of preparing people for the Eucharist instead of loaves and wine, or at least loaves and grapes? We don't have fish in the Eucharist, which I suppose is a good thing. We'd have to have a refrigerator in here instead of a tabernacle. One reason is because our Lord's presence in the bread represents his sacrifice, and his presence in the wine represents his innocence. Together, these make Christ's work on the cross redemptive. Christ wasn't just a sacrifice, and he wasn't just perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. When Christ was lifted high on the cross, his blood rained down on those around him, and by extension, us, freeing us from sin. It did so because Christ's blood was innocent of all corruption, unstained by original sin. Blood and water flowed from his side, a symbol of his perfect purity and the power of cleansing that it would have for all Christians. So how does the fish present at the multiplication of the loaves and fish play into all of this? If we go back to Noah and the flood that destroyed the world, we see that the Lord said that all flesh on earth was corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. Men and women were growing more evil with each generation, so God flooded the earth with water. Now, for people and for all of the animals that walked the land, except for Noah and his entourage who were allowed to survive in the ark, that meant disaster, but not for the creatures that lived in the sea. For them, the flood would have been a great blessing. So we can say that the corruption that God found on earth referred to the land, not to the sea the sea was considered a place of innocence. It's why even today people look at the sea and they see a place of tranquility and beauty and mystery. Under the law of the Old Testament, which kosher observant Jews follow even today, there are precise regulations for the slaughtering of animals for food. One of the most important aspects of kosher slaughter is that all blood must be carefully drained away from the animal because consuming blood is strictly forbidden. The reason is because it was a common pagan practice to consume blood. But more importantly, Jews believe that the blood, whether of an animal or of a person, contained the life force of that creature. To drink the blood of an animal was to debase oneself, to become like the animal that the blood came from. In pagan cultures where animals were worshiped as gods and in which people desired animalistic powers, that was precisely the point. But to the Jew, it was going in the opposite direction, because men and women, not animals, were made in the image and likeness of God. Interestingly, however, there are not similar rules against the consuming of fish blood. This points to the fact that fish, being from the sea, do not fall under that same condemnation that afflicted man and the other land-based animals in Genesis. That's one reason why on Fridays and certain other days, the church asks us to abstain from eating meat, but not fish. To abstain from eating meat symbolizes our abstention from the corruption on earth that God found in the generation of Noah. And so what a clever way for Christ to show the people the true meaning of his blood sacrifice by giving them fish at the multiplication miracles, even though this would be replaced by wine at the Last Supper. Unlike animals, the blood of fish is uncorrupt, and this points to their symbolic connection to the precious blood of our Lord, which will be eventually offered through the Eucharistic species of wine. This is also the reason why so many times in the New Testament, the motifs of fish and fishermen so often reoccur. Recall that six or seven of the apostles were fishermen, and that Jesus told Peter that he would find a coin in a fish mouth in order to pay the temple tax or that Jesus grilled and ate fish with the apostles after the resurrection. Fish represents the idea of casting outside of the present corruption in order to renew God's creation. And so Christ comes to us with the good news of abolishing strict law in favor of sacrament, of in favor of charity, of substituting sacrament for temple sacrifice, and for creating a universal church rather than continuing the kingdom of Israel. Today we celebrate the Immaculate Conception of Mary, as Pope Pius IX defined the Immaculate Conception that the Blessed Virgin Mary, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, she was preserved free from every stain of original sin. Mary's Immaculate Conception was the turning point in history the moment when the foretold plan of the coming of Christ was put into concrete action. Adam had Eve, his partner in sin and the downfall of mankind. Christ, too, had Mary as his partner in our redemption. Just as Christ's innocent blood in his work of renewing the earth is symbolized by a fish, it's no coincidence that Our Lady has often been associated with the sea itself, the medium which sustains and nurtures the fish. Mary is often called the Stella Maris, the star of the sea, a pun on the Latin word mare for sea and the name Mary. It's why at Marian celebrations throughout the world, especially in coastal cities, oftentimes a bishop will consecrate the sea itself to the Virgin Mary. We recall that in the account of Genesis, it says that before the land was formed, there were vast waters. God took the next step of separating the dry land from the waters and set in motion the creation of man, who would then defile himself and the world by sin. But in God's perfect providence, he held back some of the earth to remain covered by water. And that water would wash over the earth in the flood as an act of God's justice, destroying everything. But this, of course, was only a prelude. For even in the garden, God foretold that a woman would be the instrument in overcoming the reign of the serpent, who not incidentally crawls along the land. So when it came time to send his only begotten son into the world, the immaculate water of Mary's womb nurtured the unborn Christ, like new creation springing forth from the unsullied waters of our past. In 1854, when Pope Pius IX infallibly defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, it was a dark time for the Church. Secularism, atheism, and revolution were running amok throughout Europe. Many intellectuals believed that mankind was on the cusp of doing away with the Christian faith altogether. Yet from this simple but profound dogma, a great renewal in the church arose, the fruits of which are still being felt today. All of these fruits are awakened, have awakened, been awakened by a deeper understanding of the Immaculate Conception of Mary her sinless way of guiding us toward a deeper understanding of Christ. In the flood, God condemned the world through water. Through Mary, the star of the sea, Christ is flooding the world again in an act of redemption, and day by day, the face of the earth is being renewed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.